Hello and welcome to another installment of the Y Football Podcast with me, Michael Dryden and Eches Adokru. Today we'll be talking all about the Italian match-fixing scandal uh, of 2006, Calcio Poli. Before we start, please follow us on Twitter at YFootball underscore and subscribe with us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and YouTube. So Eches, Happy New Year to you. How are you doing? Over the moon. Um, also back three points yesterday. Playing what I can only mm. describe as Barcelona esque football, <laughs> uh, pure Pep Guardiola 2008 2009 period. It was good to be fair. Second, second, uh, was you know, over the years, we've been seeing so many highlight reels of like, I mean, more back in the day under Wenger of these unbelievable Arsenal yep. goals. This actually was one of those goals, yeah. It was, it was, it was art, mate, to be honest with you. Uh, just pure art. No, it's actually really good because obviously the season's been difficult. Uh, it was West Brom because I know a lot of people will be firing shots at me being like, oh, but you're still bottom half of the league <laughs> and so you're not in the Champions League spots. But to me, that was, it was magical. The goal, who is that, who is that impression uh, of? Every single hater out there. <laughs> I've, caught, I've brought them all into one. I've formed them into one solitary voice. Um, but no, it was really good football. It's good to see the academy boys playing really well. Um, I love beating Big Sam. <laughs> Why? <laughs> because he he's one of those guys, I think when the Invincibles were around, he drew a few times and I think he actually won, won the odd game against Arsenal back then. And I think him and Wenger always clashed because Wenger said he's anti-football and he was like, you know, I'm, I'm doing me. And I'm all for that. But I feel he's always had like this grudge with Arsenal. You know, he came into the job, the West Brom job, and he was like, yeah, Arsenal strong relegation candidates. He, you know, he kind of said that to kind of poke some fun, I think. You know, Arsenal technically by default were relegation candidates and you could still argue are. However, that, you know, he he, <laughs> me, he meant something by those words and I'm very, very happy that he's been absolutely whacked. The last he used to always get, Wenger used to always get wound up by the, the, the big Sams, the Tony Pulis of this world. I remember the, the whole Arsenal stalk kind mm. of debacle that went on because obviously Stoke were, if you're talking about Big Sam anti-football, bear in mind he used to bring in a lot of like European footballers like Ivan Campo and you know Jokhev and those like, you think about Pulis <laughs> and the whole you know, Delap throw, long ball tactics yeah. Wenger, Wenger hated it Yeah, you could see him shaking on the touchline with rage <laughs> Anyway, Dryden, how you doing? Yeah, I'm not bad, I've been trying to get out we've uh, you know been out with my household uh, down the coast just trying to get out of the house, really. I mean, hopefully 2021 will be more fruitful. Uh, I watched the Ryan Garcia fight last night, boxing match. Not really a huge fan of boxing, but quite entertaining. Luke Campbell won uh, gold for Britain in 2020, uh, 2012 at the Olympics. So that was quite entertaining. But yeah, aside from that, not, not much is going on. Hoping that you know the Euros will be back in 2021. Is that Luke Campbell fact, uh, you know, just the only fact you're going to drop during this pod? Well, I thought I'd get in early doors because I mean this is quite a, this is quite a niche topic, so I thought I'd get in really early doors. Yeah, no worries, mate. I'm just going to write that one down. But thank you for sharing. <laughs> so, right, Eches, kicking off. Uh, why this topic in particular? So, after rewind um, back to the 2005 FA Cup, uh, Arsenal played Manchester United, and uh, we went. We didn't have Thierry Henry present that day, uh, and we actually managed to win the FA Cup on penalties. I think five four. I believe who missed for Man United? I can't remember, you know. Oh, Skulls, I think, missed for Man United. Arsenal scored all five of their kicks. Vieira lifted the cup. <laughs> Captain Fantastic. Uh, boo for Skulls. And at the time, I believed that we would then win the league for the next five years in a row. But unfortunately, uh, loads of Arsenal stars left. 
um, for a variety of reasons. This isn't a pod about Arsenal. Yeah, I'm going to get to the point really soon. Um, but obviously, you know, the captain fantastic of the day was Patrick Vieira, as I said, who joined Juventus. Uh, a few posters were torn down in my room. I was 11 mm. then. Uh, a few tears were shed. But after that, um, you know, I followed Vieira's career. I was, I was interested in Juventus, a massive club. And, uh, you know, I wanted to see how he was getting on. But I think I remember really quickly after that, you know, he was involved in like, this massive scandal. So he went to the World Cup with France. Um, they obviously didn't win. And I just remember this like scandal going down and he, he left very quickly to join Inter Milan. And I just kind of vaguely recall it happening. And I know it affected other players as well. But I kind of wanted to do a poll on it because everyone's aware of this match fixes scandal, some more so than others. But, you know, there are some big questions from it. What actually happened? What was the scandal? Who did it involve? And how did it come about? Uh, and that's why I wanted to do a podcast on the Caltropoli scandal of 2006. Yeah, I remember being about 12 years old when Calcio Poly happened. Um, and like you, I wasn't like <laughs> overly kind of aware of the details at that age of what went on. But I remember being quite a big fan of Alessandro Del Piero at that time and uh, followed his career loosely, as you would at that age. And I do recall like him and Buffon staying at the club when they went down to Serbia. Mm. Um, and obviously watching them both in the 2006 World Cup. Um, so it seemed like a rollercoaster year for Italian football. Um, but obviously one that brought fruits for the, the national team. So actually, what actually happened with Garcia Poli? I think the most important thing here for a lot of our listeners and probably for you as well, Dryden, is what does Cassiopoli actually mean? Mm. Uh, and it actually translates to football gate. It doesn't sound as good, football gate. I think uh, Cassiopoli just sounds a bit more mysterious. <laughs> uh, but back in 2004, uh, there were quite a lot of rumours doing the rounds. Uh, one was alleged that Juventus players were susceptible to doping, while the other talked about illegal betting and corrupt referees. So what happened was as a task force was set out to investigate these claims and something much larger is actually uncovered, which was the football game, a.k.a. Calciopoli. Yep. So in 2006, uh, Turin magistrates tried um, approaching Italian football authority, but they realised that the officials themselves are compromised. The problem was, was that Italian's then Prime Minister and owner <laughs> President of East Milan, Silvio Berlusconi, didn't want a public investigation because his club was involved in the scandal. Right, now I have a point here. Silvio Berlusconi used to uh, own AC Milan, fair enough. Imagine, imagine like David Cameron before, just like owning Aston Villa or something. <laughs> Can you imagine? Like, it's just like, it's one of those things where like, you just accept it because it's what you're told. But then when you actually think of like how influential that is and how it's just like reeks of collusion that you have the prime minister yeah. of your country and he owns one of the biggest clubs, at, you know, not even just in Italy, but in the world. I find it bonkers. Yeah, true. It's only really in Spain where you get that kind of uh, links between politics and football. But then that's more like the old mm. kind of monarchy. I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert on that field, but. Um, I'm unsure whether the actual government itself is still involved and the politics, politicians themselves are actually still involved with football, whereas in Italy, even as recent as, say, you know, 15 years ago and and beyond, you have the prime minister of the country was an owner of a football club. I mean, it is something quite romantic about that if it goes well, but at the same time, seemingly, there's someone like Berlusconi who's been involved in so many scandals and I'm a little bit ignorant saying this, but there's no surprise to hear his name cropped up in this scandal. I don't know why, Um, but there's been a number of scandals over the years related to his personal life, his financial kind of dealings, and then obviously his 
prime ministerial role. Um, but yeah, I mean, imagine if Boris Johnson owned Fulham. It would just be, there'd be just so much, it would just be kind of laced in controversy at all times. It would end in swift relegation and tears. <laughs> that's what I will say. Um, but yes, that's basically um, why I didn't want it in the courts. So what the magistrates then decided to do was they turned to the media and Calciopoli spread like wildfire amongst papers like Gazette della Sport, amongst other papers mm. too. Uh, but precisely, you know, what was the allegation? So what it related to was the Juventus sporting director at the time, a guy called Luciano Moggi, was attempting to influence results by picking certain referees he considered more favourable to Juventus uh, to, you know, kind of aid them in dubious calls or tight decisions. The scandal itself involved a huge network of untraceable phone calls, secret payoffs and proposals that no match official could refuse. I remember reading that line thinking, what what would it take for me? What would it take for me to not be able to refuse something? I know what you mean, though, because, like, I mean, it's still their livelihood, isn't it? And if you then get found out seemingly as what they did, then you could lose your life to an extent. Yeah, that, that sounded so great. Was <laughs> 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 well, your lose your livelihood? <laughs> forget, forget the match fixes; you can lose your life altogether. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was further alleged uh, throughout the season as well that top players of rival clubs are also shown a calculated number of yellow cards to ensure their suspension when their teams faced uh, clubs at Juventus and other clubs mentioned later on. Um, the fascinating thing about this allegation and this investigation was it involved so many high people within the game, including Marcello Lippi, mm. uh, the Italian winning football coach yeah. for the World Cup, who three weeks before he actually won the World Cup, had to answer questions over bias in his selection of Juventus players for the World Cup. It was alleged that Moggi had asked him to select uh, a smaller number of Juventus players to keep the Juventus lads in top shape uh, <laughs> for the season ahead. Can you imagine? Yeah, it's a bit bizarre. Like, it's a bit bizarre. It, it, it is really, really interesting. Um, however, Marcello Lippi and the players were cleared. But it's a bit bizarre because, I mean, he, you know, Juventus are a big side and were a huge side in Italy at that time, and they obviously are again now. If Italy didn't consist of a number of Juventus players, you would have thought that would severely hamper their ability to win the World Cup, but seemingly it didn't. <laughs> and Lippi went on to lift the World Cup uh, in Germany, which is, is a bit mad. But, yeah, it's just a, it's just a crazy thought that as an owner, I mean, now it's different because your players playing in the World Cup is a massive deal for a football club because obviously their their profile, their value rockets in a World Cup year. But then seemingly yeah. that <laughs> he was so concerned about Juventus's ability to win the domestic title and the Coppa Italia or whatnot. And so, all right, lads, get off the plane. Can you imagine? Yeah, you know what? Well, we're not going to call him up. But yeah, it's, it's a fascinating scandal indeed. So, Eches, who was behind the scandal? It won't take a detective to work out that it's a guy called Luciano Moggi, who I've mentioned a few times <laughs> already. Uh, but Luciano Moggi has a quite interesting career. So he started off as a ticket collector at a railway station. I couldn't find the name of the railway station, but he, that's what his profession was beforehand. Okay. Uh, during his time, he befriended a baker who worked as a part-time scout and would often take Moggi to watch football matches. Uh, Moggi used that connection to land himself a job as a youth scout for Juventus. And that was the beginning of Moggy and like his building of this secret empire. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, he began to work his way up the ladder, working tirelessly to form relationships with magistrates, politicians, celebrities, diplomats, military officials, etc. And most importantly, journalists. Uh, he used that wide 
network of contacts uh, to you know, gain himself. And he actually, he was involved in a match-fixing scandal of Lazio, which involved the late, great Paolo Rossi. Moggi fortunately escaped punishment and continued working at various roles because he left Juventus at Roma, Napoli and Torino before returning to Juventus as their chief managing director in 1994. A fantastic year because it's the year of my birth. <laughs> uh, it was from here that he started to put into his plans in motion for the Calciopoli, which was made easier by the fact he had such a strong influence in the game, you know, in these powerful men, not just inside football, but outside it as well. Yeah, he sounds like a kind of modern-day Joseph Stalin with that kind of rise from the <laughs> tick collector to, um, to being a managing director at Juventus and obviously involved in one of the greatest scandals. You, you don't really hear much of Max, Max Fixing scandals in other nations, really, do you? I mean, I could be wrong, yeah. but you, I mean, unless we're ignorant in this country or we just haven't found out anything in England, we've, we've not had anything like that in the Premier League or English First Division that I'm aware of. Um, but in Italy, you've had the Paolo Rossi scandal with Lazio that you mentioned in 1980. There's also lesser known scandals like in 2011 and 2015. There was um, scandals relating to Serie B and lower league games being fixed. Um, I believe Calcio Catania, they were involved in the 2015 scandal. Um, it just seems like every five years there's a scandal in, in Italy. Uh, and we've, <laughs> so five years on, we've reached that time, but I don't, you know, hopefully it's out the game now. But I wonder if corruption is still woven into the fabric of Italian football because if there is still a political element to it, if you still have such influence from, you know, magistrates, politicians, journalists, then it's almost kind of like it's almost inevitable you're going to get a bad egg and it's going to happen in some in some in some way, shape or form because I mean, two thousand fifteen was not too long ago and there was players involved with that. So it makes you wonder if it's still rife today. Yeah, you're actually wrong about um, there being no match fixing in England. So um, not too long ago, I think around 2016, Sunderland broke their trance of record signing to sign Didier and Dom. Yeah, okay. Uh, and yeah, and there was a scandal involved there because, uh, you know, the rumours have it that they uh, grossly overpaid for a very <laughs> poor talent. Um, so I don't, I don't know the details on that one. Um, I remember hearing about it in 2016. I was actually in Thailand myself then. I remember hearing about it. So that is just the most appalling attempt at a joke I mean, ever. I mean, <laughs> well, there's, there's a there's a there's a there's an anecdote that apparently uh, I think it was runs. They runs. They were they they thought there was like a zero add on to the the price tag, <laughs> like as an error, as if that's going to happen. <laughs> like an email is like got like an extra three or four <laughs> notes on the end by mistake, but. Uh, we'll, we'll gloss over that anyway, Ches. We'll, uh, we'll give you a timeout. So moving on, Ches. So what actual evidence did they have against Moggy and Co? Yeah, so the strange thing about Karshopoli was how publicised it was in the press, you know, with loads of leaked uh, conversations entering the papers. Um, you know, it, it's quite... You know, it does happen when there's scandals here in, in England. I remember the whole Ryan Giggs one and yeah. other examples as well. But it was quite strange how much of it went through the papers. The conversation the papers picked up uh, included uh, chats that Moggy had with the head of the National Referees Association, uh, Pierre Luigi, aka Gigi mm. uh, Parietto. Uh, it clearly showed the two of them preferring particular referees for Juventus games. Uh, this evidence was found courtesy of a wiretap, uh, and some of the details were pretty shocking. I'm going to run through a few of them now. One of them was a conversation between the two on the 11th of August 2004. A day after Old Ladies Champions League third-round qualifying game, it showed Moggy expressing his disapproval 
of the match official after he had ruled out a goal that was scored by uh, Fabrizio Michele. Uh, yeah, ultimate team legend. We've discussed it a few times. Absolute hero. Um, give him a badge of honour. <laughs> uh, another conversation discussed on the 23rd of August 2004, uh, right before a second leg game against Dudragarden, Moggi and Parietto, uh, who was the referee, discussed the crucial European match. Parietto assured Moggi that Juventus will win 4-1 and they do just that. That's confidence. <laughs> That's what I will say. Yeah, I'm sure how referees been selected historically in England, but it's crazy to think that uh, you know Moggy could influence appointments that easily. I don't know what the what the procedure is currently say in the Premier League for appointing a match official to games. You obviously have those with allegiances to certain clubs or affinities. If they're a fan, for example, uh, like if Mike da- if Tranmere ever got to the Premier League, Mike Dean wouldn't be refereeing because he's an absolute <laughs> huge Tranmere fan, for example. <laughs> but like you know, it, you'd think it wouldn't be so easy. It's such a fundamental part of the game that the, the referee has to be impartial. That's got to be like rule number one, surely. And for someone to be able to influence that so um, easily just shows the like level of power and um, that he's seemingly worked up and the fear, kind of element of fear that it probably is, um, environment of fear that he's probably, you know, instrumented on some of these officials and throughout his like kind of influence in the game. It's quite, it's quite sad really, I think. But, you know, some of these quite vulnerable officials that don't earn a lot of money getting, you know, threatened. Mm. So, you know, we're aware that Carl Siopoli affected other clubs, um, namely AC Milan as well as Fiorentina. So you probably were wondering, you know, where did they actually come into all of this? And the leaked conversations not only showed Moggy trying to manipulate and use officials, but also other clubs, uh, you know, Milan, Lazio and Fiorentina were also influencing referees as well. And, you know, we discussed it earlier when you said that, you know, referees might lose their life. Um, but when looking into the episode, you may think, why did refs get involved or what did they have to gain? The issue lies in the influence and power that Moggy had. Mm. He knew that, you know, the Itali- he had so much influence on the Italian refs. If they refused, they could be demoted from big games or removed as refs altogether. So they were kind of forced into complying, but then also, you know, they were given money in exchange as well but it was more of a case of you couldn't really say no because it could affect your livelihood yeah um which is what refs didn't really want to happen to them and that way everyone wins the refs kind of get paid even though it's against their will the top dogs are happy because the games are being influenced so who was found guilty and what were the punishments so originally loads of them were handed out really huge punishments and there were loads of appeals so i'm going to just go through the appealed the final 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 um punishments so ac milan were docked 30 points in the 2005-2006 season and had to play one game behind closed doors their point deduction for 2006-2007 was eight points mm. fiorentina were booted out of 2006-2007 champions league and had to play two games behind closed doors their points deduction was minus 15 for the 2006-2007 season Lazio booted out of the uefa cup for the 2006-2007 season and had to play two games behind closed doors and were deducted three points for 2006-2007 season. Uh, Regina were fined 100k and their president was banned for two and a half years and fined 30,000 euros. They also picked up an 11-point deduction for 2006-2007 season. And last but not least, Juventus, mm. who had the heaviest punishment. They were stripped of the 2004-2005 title, relegated to Serie B, and handed a nine-point deduction for the 2006-2007 season. 
Um, and Luciano Moggi himself had a five-year ban from football and five years and four months imprisonment. He was acquitted in 2015. Do you not think that's a little bit crazy? I mean, so you've got the Regina um, owner who is banned for two and a half years, and then you've got Moggy, obviously the, the kind of kingpin of this operation, banned for five years. What do you have to do to get banned for life? <laughs> You're Luciano Moggy. You, you've literally instrumented, kind of undermined the integrity of Italian football for a number of years at the very top of the game. And you only get banned for five years. I'm not sure what he's currently doing. I imagine his reputation is tarnished to the extent that he won't be back yeah. in the game or to that level. But like, it's almost like, what do you have to do to really get banned for, for life? It's almost like he's given... It just seems quite lenient for me. I don't know. I don't know if that's linked to the fact that he has so many connections in the game. But it just... For me, it's a bit, a bit crazy that you wouldn't get banned for life. I think he said sorry. Oh, I so, said sorry. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. I take that back. Uh, I think we yeah. reduced the sentence, actually. I think that's quite unfair. Yeah. <laughs> no, but no, you, you do make a very good point, all jokes aside. I think that's a general issue in football, is that when when very high-profile people make mistakes, whether it's in Italy, England, or whatever, you're looking for an example to be made out of that individual. And often it's a case where it's a light slap on the wrist. Um, you know, England can kind of be similar in certain things. It's not in match fixing, but maybe with issues with race or homophobia, yeah, etc. The FA, the head of the FA, was it Greg Dyke? Am I, yeah. You know, and his comments, yeah, yeah. Like, well, it's basically quite ignorant comments that he made. I believe he stepped, did he step down? I'm not too sure. But Yeah, he, yeah, he, has, he has resigned. That is an example of someone that, you know, he probably could have got away with that because he's, you know, if you're in a position of power like that, and, you know, it's different with Moggy because he wasn't kind of head of the Italian Football Federation. But if you're in a position of power like that, you have so many people around you that then are loyal to you and benefit from your kind of existence at that level. No, I completely agree with you. And kind of to round up, I wanted to talk about the aftermath of the Syria. So, you know, it's really easy to say, oh, you know, Inter Milan, I vaguely remember, became the quite dominant side because their two main rivals got relegated or docked points. Um, but, you know, the actual aftermath of Syria was much greater than that. You know, the issue with a scandal like that is it led to a max exodus of players at Juventus, you know, Turam's Latin and my best mate, Patrick Vieira. But it wasn't just Juventus. It's actually, according to the statistic, roughly 30 players who played in the 2006 World Cup that summer, a World Cup which Italy had won, yeah. had actually left Syria for other leagues. Mm. So it doesn't just affect Juventus, it affected Milan, it affected Frontina, it affected Inter, etc. And such a max exodus of talent went largely unreplaced because, you know, Italian teams are struggling to then put teams together to compete both domestically and in European competitions. Italy was seen, you know, was stained. So yeah. the best players no longer wanted to go to Italy because some of the best clubs were struggling in terms of relegation and points deduction. And the best of the best didn't really want to go because of the reputation. So what that meant was clubs like AC, Inter and Roma were trying to rebuild and remain competitive, but were having to overpay for average talent to remain competitive because it was simply that the best of the best no longer wanted yeah. to go. Now, I know in the mix of all of this, you have uh, Inter winning quite a few league titles and you also have Jose Mourinho winning, you know, the fantastic trouble in 2009, 2010. That was a good Inter side, but, you know, they were seen as underdogs, not only in the final, but also the semi-final against Barcelona. Uh, and I think what we kind of saw was the long-term impact in that league 
were the top sides overspending on average talent. But actually, in the late years after that, many of those teams are actually overstretched financially. Yeah, it seems to have a long lasting repercussions. And I mean, the likes of AC Milan and Inter Milan have only really seemingly recovered to really challenge at the top of uh, Serie A, particularly Inter. Um, you know, ironically, actually, Juve have obviously came back to dominate Italian football and have been largely, you know, unthreatened to an extent. They've won quite a lot of Scudettos, have uh, been threatened by the likes of Napoli, who potentially, it seems like Napoli and perhaps Roma perhaps benefited from this to an extent. I mean, I know they're involved, yeah. but, you know, obviously with giants like AC Milan and Inter were huge in the, in the noughties. Um, you think AC, I think AC did win the Champions League in 07, but that was possibly because kind of the implications of this scandal hadn't really, or the long-lasting kind of repercussions financially hadn't really set in yet. Um, but for long swathes of, say, the last decade, you know, AC Milan and Inter Milan were largely irrelevant towards the end anyway. And um, we might be seeing a resurgence. Hopefully it will because it become more competitive in Serie A. But yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's no surprise to hear that so many players left because, as I mentioned earlier, the integrity of Italian football has been undermined. And if you're a player... You know, you still want to be fighting for, in a fair kind of competition, fighting for a Scudetto, the competitions, yeah. you know, without this fear that, you know, you, each game you're playing is actually just a, it's just a fallacy. It's just a false game. It's a, it's a, it's a fixed game or there's some element of it that's um, being controlled at the top by those that aren't footballing men. And it is really sad, but hopefully that the nation is now rid of that because if, a lot of people have a love affair with Serie A. Um, and, you know, we don't want to see that league falter. No, and I think, you know, as, as you mentioned, it's in a good spot now with Inter and AC's resurgence and Juventus's dominance, which has actually made the league quite stale. But, you know, those two sides in particular are doing really well. I know AC are top or were top. I'm not 100% sure at the moment, but I think that is really going to help the profile of that league. You know, I think the licked moving to Juventus was like a milestone. Yeah. Because I think for years we had Juventus competing, getting the best Italian talent, some of the best European talent for free in some cases, um, gambling on a lot of young players and bringing them across. But the Licks was the first time I'd seen an Italian club get a player that was wanted by the world's best. We're talking United, yeah. we're talking Barcelona, we're talking Real Madrid, but in Munich were linked with him and Juventus won that race. And I think that was kind of their arrival for me as their big player. They, they always have been a big player. They're one of the greatest sides in world football um, and they always will be. But that was kind of their standing of we're back. Even Ronaldo, but Ronaldo was unique because so few clubs can afford Ronaldo. Yeah. So, you know, it wasn't like everyone wanted Ronaldo's kind of Juventus or PSG, but the Lick was one where they paid the money and got, in my opinion, one of the world's greatest talents. Um, and I think that will do wonders for the league. And hopefully, as you rightly said, they put it all behind them and they can push on so that we can have a competitive uh, European front with loads of interesting domestic leagues. Oh, absolutely. All right. Well, that's all from us this week. Thank you, Eches, for your insight on Calcio Poly. Uh, scandal of 2006 very insightful um thank you all for listening before we finish please do not forget to follow us on twitter at yfootball underscore and subscribe with us on all our platforms apple Podcasts, spotify earcast and youtube so cheers guys and we'll see you next week cheers guys